Let's pray as we come to hear from God's word. Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we come to you, the author of these words and the author of life. And we come to hear words of life from you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you will speak to us, writing your words of truth and life on our hearts, that we might turn our eyes to Jesus and see him who is our life. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen. As I suspect many of you heard on Tuesday evening, a 17-year-old boy killed three innocent people, a father, father, a mother, and an unborn child in a horrific accident. And this should anger us, should cause us grief and mourning. But we should also be careful how we respond. How we respond to the incident and to the boy involved. See, it's a humbling and even depressing reminder that we live in a broken and sinful world. It reminds us of the depths of human brokenness and depravity. And it reminds us that we too are sinners. See, the only thing that sets you apart from this 17-year-old boy is the grace of God. Do we recognize our constant and daily need for Jesus? Do we see how much our world needs Jesus? Last time in Mark, we saw that Jesus is the promised Messiah, announced by John the Baptist. And John announced that God's king would come and the beginning of God's eternal kingdom and rule would begin. What we see today is that acceptance into this kingdom is not about who we are. It's not about what we can do. It's not about what we can offer. It's not about how good we are. Instead, it's based on the redeeming work of Jesus and the salvation he offers us and what he has done on the cross. After beginning his ministry, Jesus calls his first disciples. He travels throughout Galilee to preach the gospel, to drive out demons and to heal the sick. And understandably, this gets a lot of attention. Jesus was front page news in the region. And so we read here, when Jesus returns to Capernaum, the word gets out, Jesus is back. And they gathered in such large numbers, there was no room left. Now maybe the crowds gathered because they were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Or maybe it's because he gave orders to impure spirits and they obeyed him. Or maybe it's because he healed many who had various diseases. We'll read this all in chapter 1. But whatever the reason, the crowd gathers around Jesus. We've seen in recent months people flocking to a certain political figure for all kinds of reasons. Overlooking his dubious history and serious character flaws. See, when people see someone who can give them what they want... They ignore a lot of details. And I wonder why 
are we here? Why are you here? Who do you think Jesus is? What do you think he offers you? Some were amazed at his teaching, the message of the gospel. Some attracted to his miraculous power. Others, his healing from various disease. And so for different reasons, people come to him. But among people who come to him are these four men who bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. Why did they come to him? Was it because of his preaching? Because of his power? Most likely because they wanted their friend healed. They bring a paralyzed man. Now we're not told why they come, but they come. And they come with a mission. And the crowd doesn't stop them. They make their way through the crowded groups of people. They climb the stairs at the side of the house and onto the flat roof. And they dig a hole because they want to get to Jesus. Just imagine being in that room and dirt and debris crumbling on your head. Curious as about as to what is happening. A hole opens up and these four men lower their friend down before Jesus. And what do we read there? Seeing their faith, not the faith of the paralyzed man, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw the faith of the friends and forgives the man. He doesn't see the faith of the paralyzed man. He doesn't hear some confession. No, he sees the faith of his friends. And on their faith, Jesus forgives. And on that same faith, he will later heal the man. And as you read through Mark's gospel, there is a connection between faith and healing. There's a man with leprosy who begs Jesus in faith, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's a father who speaks to Jesus in faith and his daughter is raised from the dead. There's a woman who in faith touches Jesus' clothes and she is healed. In Jesus' own hometown, he couldn't heal because of their lack of faith. Now, we see this connection of faith and healing. But that's not a formula. Don't get the wrong idea. It's not that you have faith and you're healed. But there is a connection. There is a connection between faith and healing. And here it is the faith of these four men that Jesus forgives and heals the paralyzed man. But Jesus doesn't heal the man straight up. He says, your sins are forgiven what? These four men have just fought through the crowd, dug a hole in a stranger's roof, lowered their friend before Jesus, and Jesus says, your, your sins are forgiven. If you know the story, it's easy to just gloss over that. But Jesus first forgives the sin of this paralyzed man. What's going on? Throughout the Bible, we see a connection between, between sin and disease. In Psalm 107, we read, some, fools, uh, some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. Paul says to the Corinthian church that they were weak and sick 
because they disrespected one another as they came around the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper. But at the same time, personal sin isn't the cause of disease and death. We see that in Job. Job was afflicted because of his faith. But what we need to understand is that the root cause of all disease and all death is sin. And it starts with us. Our deliberate rebellion against God. But here we have Jesus. We have the promised Messiah. God's eternal King who would mark the beginning of God's kingdom and His rule. And the prophet Isaiah says about this, on, that mount, on this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove His people's disgrace from all the earth. Isaiah 25, verses 7 and 8. But in order to accomplish this, Jesus needs to deal with the root problem. To deal with this problem of disease and sickness, Jesus needs to deal with the problem of sin. Our deliberate rebellion against God. There would be no good healing this paralyzed man if Jesus didn't deal with the bigger problem. Son, your sins are forgiven. And as much as we look around our world and we see disease, death, disability, illness, cancer, and this whole mix of brokenness, as much as we see that around us and we'd be amazing to see a fix, it would only be a temporary one if we don't deal with the bigger one. See, our greatest problem is our sin. It is our broken relationship with God. And so our greatest need is forgiveness. Restoring that relationship with God. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to accomplish this mission. And he would do that by giving his life. He would sacrifice his life to redeem all people for God. Do we see that is our problem? Do we see that is our greatest problem? The greatest problem that faces our world. Or maybe Jesus has just got this the wrong way around. Maybe he's just crazy. Well, the teachers of the law don't think so. The religious fact checkers of the day think Jesus is out of line. They think to themselves, they question him in their hearts. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And their fact-checking is not wrong. Only God can forgive sins. Isaiah says that God is the one who blots out your transgressions and remembers your sin no more. Now these teachers love God's law, but they're also blind in their attempt to protect God's law. They miss what God is doing right in front of them. The promised Messiah that they read about in God's law is standing right before them and they miss it. The seeming blasphemy of Jesus' words just overshadows the dawning of a new day in God's kingdom. 
Now we might think, how can you miss that? But that's human nature, isn't it? It's so easy to miss the greater things that are in front of us because we're so distracted by smaller things. I think of little children going into a toy shop and they get distracted by this smaller toy or the the lollies at the front of the shop and they demand that they get that at the sacrifice of the greater gift, the toy that that they've been promised. We can focus on other things, often good things, Having a regular quiet time, praying, reading the Bible, getting your theology right, raising good children, providing for your family, boosting your career prospects, making people happy, saving up and buying a house, building a great church. You can focus so much of your time and energy on good things that you miss out what God is doing right before you. It's easy to get caught up in the little things of each day. Not that they're bad, that we miss the bigger picture, that we miss the great things that God is doing. I don't know if you've ever tried to take a photo of someone, of a person with a bright light behind them or trying to take a photo with the sun behind them. It makes for an amazing photo. But you don't see the person. You see a silhouette. You see a shadow. And it's easy to focus so much on that person that you miss the sun that is behind it. See, the teachers of the law were furiously trying to make sense of Jesus, this person standing right in front of them, but they missed the glory that was behind him. They, they focused so much on this blasphemy that they missed the glory of God. The Messiah that they waited for, the Son of Man was standing right in front of them. Now challenging this unbelief, Jesus demonstrates his authority and his power by healing the man of his paralysis. Get up, take your mat and walk. By doing something that they can see, Jesus demonstrates that the greater thing of forgiving sins is also in his power. And so Jesus, before their very eyes, performs this miracle. But it still wasn't enough. They were so blindsided by this blasphemy that by the end of chapter 3, we see them begin their plot to kill Jesus. On the other hand, the crowd were amazed and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. I wonder if the crowd fully understood what was happening. And it's likely that both the teachers and the crowd missed the point. Here is the Son of Man standing before them. The teachers horrified by blasphemy. The crowd amazed by miraculous power. But neither truly understanding that here is God's Messiah. God's eternal King. In Daniel 7, we read of a vision that Daniel has. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. 
And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Messiah, God's eternal king, was standing before them. One like a son of man. One who was human. And he would be given authority, glory and power. And the full display of his dominion will come one day as he comes with the clouds of heaven. But until then, he is preparing a people for God. And he does that by declaring forgiveness for sin. He prepares people for God by proclaiming this good news. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As we hear these words, I want us to reflect on three things. Do we see Jesus for who he is? Do we see ourselves for who we are? But also, will we bring others to Jesus in faith? Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's eternal king who will usher in a new kingdom and rule. A kingdom where the poor and needy will find refuge. The enemies of God and his people will face destruction and judgment. Where God will provide for his people Soiling up sin and death forever, wiping away every tear and removing his people's disgrace. Do we see who Jesus is? The crowd saw a powerful teacher, a miracle worker. The Jewish teachers saw a blaspheming heretic who dared to put himself on the same level as God. Do you see the Son of Man preparing the way for people? To enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is like a hotel porter who opens the door for guests and visitors to enter the kingdom of God. Declaring forgiveness for their sin. This forgiveness comes at a price. But it's not a price that we will pay. It's a price Jesus himself will pay for us. Like frantic people fighting over toilet paper in a pandemic, Jesus fights with Satan to redeem our lives from sin and death. Jesus will back this up with a lifetime, eternal guarantee by shedding his blood on the cross. He exchanges his perfect life for our life of sin and death, crucifying that to cross. Forgiveness is offered not on the basis of our accomplishments, or our efforts, or our status, or our gifts, or our offerings to God. They are mercifully offered through Jesus' sacrifice. In place of judgment, we receive grace, the favor of God, the King of heaven and earth. But do we see that in ourselves? Do we see that we are sinners before a holy king, before a righteous judge, David writes in Psalm 143, For no one living is righteous before you. Do we think that we're somehow good enough to stand on our own merit or status before God? Do we count ourselves among all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Do you understand that the wages of sin is death? When we hear Jesus' words to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
So we hear that Jesus is speaking to us. Or do you think he's speaking to the person next to you? Do you think he's speaking to this 17-year-old boy? Well, he is. But he's also speaking to you. The message of the gospel is for all sinners. And that's you and me. No one living is righteous before God. You're not better or worse than anyone else. Before God, you are all. We are all sinners. We have fallen short of His glory. And for our sin, we deserve death. Yet, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. God is holy, He is righteous, and He is just. And would be foolish for us to forget that, but He is also loving, gracious, and merciful. He sent His one and only Son to become the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He redeems us by going to the cross. Yes, you are a sinner. Don't you ever forget that, but you are loved by the Almighty. You are loved by the God who will give His Son to forgive your sin. Recently, I caught up with an old friend who shared about uh, their experience with miscarriage. And for them, it was a lonely one because they couldn't share it with anyone. Why? They couldn't share it because our world tells you to look in the mirror every morning and speak words of affirmation to yourself and love yourself. That's what the world tells you to do. You look in the mirror and you say, I love and accept you. I am enough. I support you. I deserve a great day. I can do it. I am special. And the list goes on. That's what the world tells you to do. But see, those things are dangerous. Because they are summed up in this. Looking in the mirror and saying, I am God. And I define who I am. That is what self-affirmation is about. It is declaring that you are God. And while that might sound great, what happens when everything falls apart? Can you bear the weight of brokenness and sin? See, the dark side of self-affirmation is when everything comes crumbling down, you are all alone. If you are God, there is no one else. To share your defeat and weakness is to admit that you are not God. And our world can't do that. But we have an alternative. Instead of speaking words of self-affirmation, we can speak words of God's affirmation. I am a sinner but I am created in the image of God. God created me for His glory. Jesus loves me. He accepts me. He died for me. He adopts me into His family. Jesus joins me to a people, His church. Jesus is with me. Jesus wants the best for me. The Holy Spirit is transforming me, making me more like Jesus. He forgives me. He wins. He is God. And I live for Him. My family belong to Him. 
My school, my studies, my work, my future belong to Him. My money, my time, my skills, all that I am belongs to Him. As Paul says to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Will you put your faith and your trust in Him? Or will you be like the crowd who was simply stood amazed at what Jesus did, but would not follow Him? Or would you be like the Jewish teachers who are so offended by Jesus' claims to be God, to be the only way, the way, the truth, and the life? Will you be so offended that you ignore His offer of life? Or will you see that you are paralyzed and broken by sin? That your greatest need is not your earthly happiness, health or prosperity, but forgiveness for sin. But it's not just your sin, is it? It's the sin of the world. In the previous chapter, disciples came looking for Jesus because everyone was chasing after him. But Jesus says, let us go elsewhere to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. In the following episode, as we heard with the kids, Jesus says to the Pharisees, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is concerned for all people to know the gift of forgiveness. And you notice the thing about this story. It is the faith of the four men that result in forgiveness and healing of the paralyzed man. It wasn't his faith. It was their faith. And if this past year has reminded us of anything, it is that we can't do this alone. More than any time, I think, in this generation We are reminded that we can't do it alone. Your faith is not an individual matter between you and God. It's a personal one, but it's not an individual one. Now, your faith is deeply tied, not just to God, but to the people of God, the church, and more specifically in practice to your local church. And the words of Hebrews that we've repeated over and over through this time, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And as we walk this life of faith, we need one another. And it's not just getting together on a Sunday, but every day. Walking together every day of the week. We read of the early church that they would meet every morning to pray. Now that's hard. I'm not suggesting that we start meeting every morning for prayer. That would be lovely though. But every day it is an encouragement to encourage and support one another. To be intentional about living life together. 
So next week, we're going to launch our life groups. And we want to do that intentionally, to live life together, to encourage and spur one another on in the faith. Equally, most people don't come to Jesus on their own. It's a rare occasion where that happens. On average, it takes at least 10 Christian connections before a person comes to Jesus. And it's not necessarily that every one of them shares the gospel, but every one of them lives out Jesus to them. I remember the baptism of uh, a youth group kid, uh, and as he was sharing his testimony, it was just a list of people who God had used to bring him to Jesus. And just as the four men brought the paralyzed man to Jesus, so we can bring people to Jesus too. So you can't do that on your own either. Have you thought that maybe you can invite other people into those relationships? Invite your Christian brothers and sisters into your friendships as you try and bring people to Jesus. When you go out with them, invite someone along. When you grab a drink, grab a coffee, invite someone along. If there's a need to be met, grab a bunch of people together. Bring other people along as you try and bring people to Jesus. Don't do it alone. But in the same way, bring one another. Bring one another to Jesus. And that's something we want to try and do better. We want to do more of that. Continue to encourage and spur one another on together. As there are opportunities for love and good deeds, do that together. When there are times of hardship and difficulty, speak and point one another to Jesus together. Pray, give thanks together as we seek to follow Jesus. Do you see who Jesus is? He's the Messiah, the Christ, the promised Savior, God's eternal King, who will call a people and prepare them for God. People will flock to Jesus for different reasons, for His gospel, His miraculous power, His authority over demons, dreaming of a better life for themselves. But Jesus' idea of a better life is vastly different to ours. And he does that by dealing with our sin. That's where he starts. And he forgives our sin. So that we can be in relationship with him. Because we're sinners. We're sinners in need of forgiveness. Would we dare to admit that we are paralyzed and broken by sin? That today, tomorrow, the days to come, we need Him. But do you also realize that you are loved? Love that God would send His Son to die for you. And all Jesus asks is to repent and believe. Put your faith in Him. Trust Him with life. But if that's hard... That's too hard. 
Gather around others who can bring you to Jesus. Now, they can't be Jesus for you, but they can bring you to Him. Let their faith encourage you. Let their faith support you as you bring one another to Jesus and find forgiveness in Him. Band together in faith. Band together in life. Band together as you seek to reach people for Jesus. It's not up to you to do it alone. Do it together. And all it takes is a little faith from each person. And God can take that and use that. And to every sinner who comes to Jesus in faith and trust, he says these words, your sins are forgiven. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we praise you. We give you thanks for the forgiveness of sin. And those words are not empty, but they are brought to life in your death. In your sacrifice, in your work on the cross, you have secured forgiveness for all time. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we pray that we will continue to see that we will always need you. Even into eternity. Because you are God. You are the Messiah. You are Lord. You are Savior. But also help us to remember who we are. Yes, we are sinners, but we are loved. And in faith, we are adopted and redeemed. We are children of God. And help us as we seek to bring others to you. Help us as we seek to bring one another to you. Help us to see how we can do that even this week. To bring one another to Jesus. Let us continue to encourage and spur one another on. To love and good deeds. And help us not to give up. As we see the day approaching. And so we pray all this for your glory's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.